Welcome to the Couch Lutters podcast. Hi, it's Trent back again with another little nosh. Your chance to get a bit more of the podcast to satisfy your lucker cravings. We hope you and all those you care about are happy, healthy, safe, following social distancing and, if necessary, self-isolation. Of course, using that time to watch some great shows. And once again, Chang Sameer to all those celebrating Pesach. And for those who aren't, at least you've hopefully taken the time to catch up with the Ten Commandments. This year, I haven't. Instead, I took up Rob's recommendation and watched Fiddler, Miracle of Miracles on Amazon. And gosh, it's a lot of fun. In this episode of The Little Notch, we dish up a bit more than usual from my chat with Bradley in which we discuss fascinating topics ranging from the process of making stop motion animation to finding peace in the beauty and universal truth of the Japanese philosophy wabi-sabi, while we also find time to tie in the good place and the Star Wars franchise for good measure. The Couch Luckers podcast, 100% kosher for Pesach. So you've been uh, writing for a kids' animation show called uh, Kitty's Not a Cat? Yes. And how is it then different um, doing the stop-motion animation versus the conventional... Like that's uh, computer-generated? Yeah, or that's it, 2D computer yeah. uh, or so flash animation. What is it a hybrid? different? And then how? what is it as far as the difference in the stories that you're telling? Why use the stop-motion, which is that pain-sale-seating, yes, that pain-staking, okay. laborious process? Um, so... Most animation we see in feature films today for families is CG animated. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same for what Simpsons would use mm-hmm. now, where it's computer and you can use something called tweening. Um, and what tweening is, it's short for in-betweening. Mm-hmm. Um, let me just take you a little bit of a history lesson in animation. When, <laughs> when Disney animation, when Walt Disney set up animation and it was the first cell animated feature you would have and this is this this first yes um very good um you would have someone who would draw the character at the beginning Mm -hmm. and you would have all the main frames of the character all the main poses so if someone was throwing a ball you would have someone picking the ball up then an arm back then an arm forward and then they would go to these you would send that a pose of all those characters and they would go to in-between animators which would fill in all the frames in between so it would flow smoothly and you'd be able to have the weight and the pacing of each movement. So it was drawing to try and achieve a photorealism. Is that what you're getting It at? was, you would have a... It was trying to replicate... A, movement. Like a, a, re, a real movement. Yes, yeah. rather than being stagnated you would need to kind of fill in how many frames... You know, if I'm, if I'm throwing a ball my arm's going to need more frames going back than going forward because you want it to go slower when you, you know, when right. you're winding up than when you throw it. And you would have between artists or tweeners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we've now got the technology to automate that to a degree. Right. Um, and so what... So a computer um, makes an assumption about the movement and fills it in. Yes. And right. then you can kind of customize that. <laughs> so with something like stop motion, which is similar to cell animation... Mm-hmm you would need to draw those frames individually. Yeah. Um, so stop motion is essentially you've got a puppet and you move the puppet and take a photo and that would be a frame and you yeah. need to make 24 of those a second. Yeah. And then you, so you're kind of 
when we set up a shot, which is I think most stop motions do, you do the same thing as what uh, you know those old Disney films would do. You would have the you block the characters. Put it under a camera, take a photo. Yeah, our, our, our animator would kind of do a rough pass where he'd kind of just so we know where the character is at a certain point in the scene, and we know a scene, and we know where the camera is focused. We'd need him to block that stage, and then he would come back and do it again, but with all the in between frames. Um, it is a really painstaking mm. process. I wrote the story. I gave it to Goldie, Andrew Goldsmith. We both believed it needed to be stop motion. It was about a doll that was unraveling and we... Inherently, that sounds textural and visceral and we wanted to kind of keep that. Right. And we thought the best way to do that was to have something that felt tangible and handmade and loved. And so having photos of wool and all the little imperfections that are beautiful about stop motion, you can kind of watch and it feel like you can reach out and grab these dolls. I'm going <clears> to <throat> dig in on that word imperfection. Ah, because, there we go. Yeah, because the, the, the name of your animation company is Wabi Sabi and Wabi Sabi uh, I have a very you know, generic understanding of and I'm looking for some more. Um, it's a Japanese... Uh, a design aesthetic? Yeah, it's a, a philosophy a, a, to do. It's a philosophy yeah. that was based on like kind of how you would decorate your room. Um, but it's a, it, it, yeah, it's a, it's a, a philosophy, yeah, a, a way of life. And it's about um, impermanence and incom- things that are incomplete. And, and imperfect. Yeah, and, imp- yeah. So, and that's something that um, you obviously identify with yes. in terms of your work a lot, yeah? Yeah. Um... I think we live in a world that, you know, isn't perfect. And we, as a, I think as a species, we try and, or at least today, we try and strive for perfection. But there's a lot of peace in accepting that we won't. Yeah. Um, and there's a beauty in that. And I know there's like a, if we have Wabi Sabi, which celebrates the transience of life. So it's very much based on nature. So a leaf is beautiful in autumn and when it wrinkles because it's dying. We we know it's ending. Mm. Things mean more to us when we know they're not going to last forever. And is that a aesthetic and a philosophy? You, it's very present in the short film, Lost and Found. Please watch it again. Is that something you're going to carry through with your other work as well? I think so. You're talking about authenticity. Yeah. Those are the stories that resonate with me and those are the stories that I enjoy writing. Mm-hmm. I think you take something that's truthful about the world and we, we, we frame it in a way that's easier to cope with without necessarily needing to sugarcoat it. I'm writing a story at the moment that's about a character that faces his insignificance. It's a... He thinks he's special and really he becomes to the realization that no one's special. And it's a, a message that seems like it's dark, but it's just, I think it's just more truthful than saying, you know, everyone is special. And I think as soon as we kind of come to terms with that, you know, that we can just be our flawed selves and find joy and beauty in that, I think we can Fine piece. I guess that you could see it as uh, digging into that again, a uh, way of connecting you with more people. If you see yourself as special and elevated, then it alienates you. Exactly. Yeah. It's a, 
<laughs> but yeah, so this is on the top of my mind. This is the deadline I was talking about. <laughs> right, right. But it's a uh, we are alone, and this is going to get dark. <laughs> we are, you know, we're floating on a blue marble. Yeah. Uh, depending on how religious you are, we might not believe that there's an afterlife. Mm-hmm. How do you kind of come to terms with that? And then make, you know, there's a strong chance that we might not be able to come to terms with that. But that doesn't mean we have to be alone in that. We still get to kind of enjoy the relationships we've got and appreciate things more because they won't last, which brings me back to what I love about Wabi Sabi. Yeah. It feels truthful and it feels authentic. Uh, and there's also, you, you, you grow a deeper appreciation of things that are imperfect or flawed. There's a... a in Japan, there was a, an art called Kintsugi, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is now kind of popularized in Western culture quite recently, actually, uh, which is repairing broken pottery uh, yes, with yeah, yeah. gold. Um, in, the, in the cracks. In the cracks, yeah. yeah. Well, it, the gold forms the cracks. Yeah, and yeah. so you're holding, instead of trying to fix it in a way that's perfect, you outline you, hi- you, you highlight the, all the these flaws yeah. and this damage because it reflects the history of that object and it shows that this object has had a unique story. So that's a, you know, um, I think a very pertinent message for Jewish people. Oh, absolutely. With, with what everything Jewish people have gone through and made us resilient and we, we do look at our, you know... And in, I, mean, just, I mean, that's why I th- just to kind of maybe I'm just still thinking about <laughs> my, my response to the two words to describe a Jewish person. I think that those are our gold cracks or yeah. foibles. <laughs> foibles, that's a great <laughs> word. It's really just to tie it into pop culture. Um, the Good Place just finished. Have you watched that? I watched the first season. I really enjoyed it. And what, uh, what you're talking about um, is very present. In that, particularly in the last series, and the thing I'm going to tie it to the most pop culture of pop culture things, and that's Star Wars. I'm, I've got to put it out there. I'm not a huge fan, but I think the thing that elevated Star Wars into the mass uh, event and cultural craze that it is is the fact that that um, lived-in world is present in it, as opposed to other sci-fi. Yes, it's a, it's a world where you see the wear and tear of uh, aliens and people living in it. Well, it's the fact that it's, uh, you know, the first line of Star Wars is a long time ago. Yeah. And so that's not in the future. It is a world that's been lived in. Yeah. Um, yeah. And even to the extent that the in the latest Star Wars, because it, it, the whole thing was inspired by Japanese... A big, uh, like Kira Kurosawa films. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And that's why Darth Vader looks like he's designed like a samurai. Yeah. yeah. Um, but to the point where uh, the newest villain in the last three films that just came out, Kylo Ren, in his helmet, he puts his helmet together and you can see red cracks. And the first thing I saw when I saw it was like, ah, they know about Kintsugi. Yeah. You know, and that's what, you know. Look, it, it, as much as I hate to admit it, it all circles back to Star Wars. <laughs> The Couch Luckers Podcast, schlepping through the zeitgeist so you don't have to. Next time on the Couch Luckers Podcast, we're trying something a little different. We are joined by the linguistics lecturer, stand-up comedy historian and marvellous Mrs. Maisel expert, Deborah Ahrens, to do a real deep dive into the series and explore the origins and context of the show. I'm currently finishing up season three of Mrs. Maisel, but if you haven't watched any of the show, don't worry, You won't be left out. 
However, if you are able to at least watch the very first episode of Mrs. Maisel prior to listening to the podcast, then I'm sure you'll find our discussion with Deborah even more interesting. So until then, please stay safe, try to keep watching, and more than anything, stay healthy. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Couch Lutkers podcast. This podcast has been produced by eathouse.com.au.